Good morning, and may it please the court. Rebecca Kurz, Federal Public Defender's Office for Mr. Mark Whitworth. Mr. Whitworth was accused of conspiracy and possession with intent to distribute methamphetamine. Law enforcement officers served a search warrant on his property. Um, there was a shed in, detached from the residence, and in that shed, officers found 250 grams of methamphetamine in a bag wrapped in bubble wrap inside of a cardboard box. They found a digital scale. They found baggies inside of a toolbox, a police scanner, and a security camera that allowed or they're fed into a monitoring system inside the shed. That evidence showed that drug trafficking was taking place. The question was, who was doing the drug trafficking? Was it Mr. Wirtworth, along with one of the informants, Russell Walker, or was Mr. Walker acting on his own? After, in an opening statement, defense counsel made clear that he was admitting trafficking was going on. The defense was Mr. Whitworth didn't, didn't do it. It was Mr. Walker. In cataloging all the evidence that had been seized, one of the officers, an experienced Highway Patrol trooper, said, well, he was asked, why did you see the, uh, seize those firearms? And he said, well, because Mark Whitworth is prohibited from having weapons. The natural inference to draw from that testimony is a negative one. The jury could have inferred he was a felon or at minimum inferred that he committed some type of bad act resulting in uh, the stripping of his Second Amendment rights. Americans are well aware that they have a right to possess firearms. A reasonable juror would know that law, and it's not, it's not an obscure point that juries would be confused on. But counsel, didn't he decline the curative instruction? He declined a curative instruction, and the government cited numerous cases saying that when you decline a curative instruction and ask only for mistrial, that you waive the issue on appeal. But the, the more accurate way, I think, to describe that point of law is to say you waive the to the extent prejudice could have been cured by an instruction, any remaining prejudice the appellate court needs to assess for harmless But it was a curative instruction plus a willingness to grant the motion to strike, right? Yes. And, and so if you look at it, um, and if you look at our presumptions against prejudice, if, if the curative instruction is given and you grant uh, the uh, the motion to strike, I mean, the, the, the it's a very high burden to show uh, that there is prejudice from that. So what is your best argument of prejudice in this particular case, given the, the rather overwhelming remainder of evidence in the, in the case? Well, first, I think, would be the district court judge's remarks. And the district court judge felt if we, do, if we move to strike, if we give the instruction, that quote just gets out a red flag and waves it around. You can't stop these guys, referring to the jury, you can't stop these guys from thinking. That's common kind of uh, belief among lawyers and judges, but that, you know, we have always said that a curative instruction, we presume the jury is going to follow it, particularly if there's a motion to strike. And so I think the burden is that you have to show some prejudice. And my question is, just having the judge say, well, and you know, you know what happened here is the judge denied the motion uh, for a mistrial, came back the next day and said, how about a curative instruction uh, and how about uh, granting a motion to strike? And did it sua sponte? 
right? Is, is, am, am I right about that? I believe so, yes. Yeah. I think that's accurate. And so at that point, making the observation is, well, it's in the past, whether you want to draw attention or not to it, I, I don't see where that's, that's, that really answers the prejudice question. Well, I think in determining prejudice, you have to look at the strength of the case. And I do disagree with you. I don't believe the, the that there's overwhelming evidence. The jury didn't hear the evidence. judge's remark, right? The jury did not hear the judge's remark. So the prejudice has to be, has to be impact on the verdict. Well, the prejudice is just from the statement alone. It's not from anything the judge said. But in this... But in the, the prejudice is not apparent on its face. I think it is prejudice on its face when a witness says Mark Whitworth is prohibited from possessing firearms. That's a fact. Well, but it also it's not brings, unfair prejudice. It brings if it's true. It, it is unfair prejudice when he has a presumption of innocence, and that presumption does not budge well, until I, I the end of testimony. I, I don't think you've got a circuit support for that equation. Well, I may not have a case that says that, but. The entire defense here was keyed around the fact that these two informants had horrible prior criminal history, that they were not credible witnesses. And you balance his presumption of innocence. But let's talk about a couple other things, too, and a couple other facts on the record. According to the minute entries, documents 118, 119, the jury deliberated almost five hours over the course of two days. They deliberated about, I think, three hours. The afternoon of the second day, came back, deliberated for two more hours. This was a short trial. This was five witnesses, took only a day and a little, and a little bit more to uh, enter all the government's evidence. After the verdict was read, the prosecuting attorney asked the court its practice regarding allowing attorneys to talk to jurors. District court said, you probably saw what I saw. There were a couple of people that were pretty upset, and they're not going to want to talk to you. So I think the fact that there's a couple of jurors pretty upset suggests they're thinking about something. Something has engaged them with that emotional reaction. Um, the physical evidence from the shed was obviously admitted, but there were no controlled buys done at the residence. There was no surveillance done suggesting high foot traffic around the residence. Um, Jackson, one of the informants, had additional credibility problems. He said, after being prompted by the prosecuting attorney, that the property was a fortress. There were cameras in the trees, on the building, all facing front. Officer Prim, the officer who did the search, so there was one security camera on the house, and it was non-operational. And then there was another camera pointed at the back of the house, which would show people as they approached the shed. It wasn't a fortress. Everybody today has a ring doorbell. Not everybody, but a lot of people today have a ring doorbell. It shows you on a camera who is standing on your front porch. That's not a nefarious or indicia of guilt in any way. Jackson's testimony gave the impression that he, when he purchased methamphetamine in 2018, that he could see he, he was not allowed to to purchase, supposedly. He said he was banned from the residence. So he would sit in a vehicle out on the road, and his friend would be sent down to purchase methamphetamine. John would go down, transcript at page 93, John would go down to the shed and then disappear in the shed, and he'd come back with our stuff. I stayed in the car, page 94. Officer Prim described it this way. 
you can't see the road from that camera angle. So the camera's on the front of the shed, and, and you can't see the road. This is all not the issue we're arguing. Well, I think we have you know, to. You want, you want to establish it was, it was a closed case. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't establish prejudice from this question. What you've omitted, and what I understand from the briefs, is that the first, Sergeant Prim's first answer to the question was what I would call a race gesti answer. This is what we do when we find guns and drugs. Guns now, and drugs. That's, that's A, consistent with law, B, probative, <clears throat> and the jury can understand that and would likely give that much more emphasis in terms of why this evidence was coming in than the second part of the answer, <clears throat> which is, an, and, and he was a prohibited person, not explaining why. Immediately following on the heels yeah, but the, of a but litany the, of evidence that already established Curative arguments are terrible. They don't do any good. But we have more than a curative, a curative instruction here. We have the first half of the response to the question being probative, relevant, and non-prejudicial, much less unfairly prejudicial. And the jury is supposed to infer that the, from the second part of in, in... It's a natural inference, and I agree with you. The first part of this statement perhaps had minuscule probative value. I don't agree that it was highly probative because it would, everything had already established trafficking. I strongly disagree. An officer explaining the circumstances of an investigation which is relevant to the case is much more than, well, barely, barely probative. It's an essential part of the, of the case, of the government's case, indeed both parties' case. Well, I have no complaint that the firearms were admitted into evidence and he said he found them. My complaint is, if you're going to say you are prohibited from finding, possessing firearms, there's a reason for that. It doesn't just happen for no good reason. It doesn't mean he flunked an eye test. It means he did something bad. He has a bad character. Well, He's that's not necessarily no, that's true. You can, be, true. you can be a prohibited person for uh, um, uh, being is. mentally defective, mentally ill. You can be a prohibited person for being dis dishonorably discharged from the military service. Um, you can be a prohibited person if you simply renounced your U.S. citizenship, right? All those people, there are a lot of like, like sort of, sort of non-perpetuitous reasons for losing uh, your license and, 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 and things that you haven't even done. I mean, um, and, and is never mind. I, I don't really have a question. Which, none of those reasons would I, in my opinion, would not be immediately apparent to a reasonable juror. I think United States versus True is of some assistance here. It's a case in which it was a felon in possession case. The defendant had six uh, prior convictions. The court, now ultimately they upheld the admission of those convictions in 404B uh, in a ruling. But the court was careful to say we have to analyze the probative value of those six convictions. And we assume perhaps that the first one had some value. But at what point does, does probative value tip into prejudice after you've gone through those six things? 
And again, I know I've repeated this, but there is, there is so much evidence of trafficking that had already been established and admitted in an opening statement. Every one of the government's cases that it cites includes this language that cautionary instructions um, may be effective, and they analyze that. But in every single case, they go on to analyze for harmless error, and they do a careful case-by-case, fact-by-fact assessment of that. So I don't think that can be skipped in this case. Also, I think that the district court made of error of law when it said, page 113, the Eighth Circuit instructs mandates, whatever you want to say, they say I'm supposed to look for uh, less than mistrial options first. They encourage the use of curative instructions. But the cases also say that a district court's decision whether to grant a mistrial is for abuse of discretion. District courts have that discretion. It is his decision whether to, to grant a mistrial. So the district court was of the opinion that he had to defer to Eighth Circuit president, precedent that I don't read in that fashion. Not when every case says, no, you've got to look at the facts. You have to weigh the amount of prejudice. So there was no instruction. I don't, I, I don't see any of those words well, used What was the objection the to that comment? The objection to which comment? What, you're just talking what the, what the district court... The oh, there was no, no objection to that comment. And so the judge is supposed to say, oh, wait a minute, Sue Spani, I, ju I just said something wrong. I have to clarify that I recognize I have discretion. Well, what he was clarifying was that he had, in the evening recess, gone and looked at some cases, and that's how he read the cases, and that's an incorrect reading of this court's precedent, in my opinion. None of the cases the government cites say there's any type of uh, command, instruction, or mandate the district. District courts get to assess the case for themselves and do what they think is appropriate, and this court defers to it. Um, mistrial was not a drastic remedy here. This is the very first witness. We've had barely half day, a little bit into the afternoon of testimony. So the victim is climbed. There's no victim who's had to suffer through a trial and the anxiety that that produces. There was a single expert. The government was going to not lose their experts. She worked for the Highway Patrol. She could have easily been called back for a retrial. Um, the question that the prosecuting attorney asked was a bad one. And one more point. In the uh, motion well, in limine... Why was it a bad one? Why was it a bad one to ask him to, for, to explain his investigation? We don't need to ask why he sees the drugs. It's obvious. Firearms go together with guns. I totally can see it's that. It's not obvious. But, oh, I, I think it's, I think that's the well, whole basis it, of it, it why the government it, it, argues it that it's admissible. That, 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 that every criminal prosecutor and defense lawyer and every, and every law enforcement agent and everyone who watches American movies like Scarface, where he's doing drugs and carrying an AK-47, they do go together. And that's said over and over in the Eighth Circuit precedent, and that's why it's admissible. But the right, comment of you can't possess them, I disagree. Thank you, Your Honors. May it please the Court, Brian Casey on behalf of the United States. 
in this matter. And I think the court's hit on a lot of the issues uh, that's been briefed and in, in, in raised in here, and a lot of what uh, the government would say in its argument. So um, I don't have a lot in addition to add, um, and unless the court has uh, some specific questions, I'd just like to make a couple of quick points. Counsel, I do have a question about the striking of the potential juror. Yes, sir. I think it's your position that that is unreviewable. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct, Your Honor, in this, in this circumstance. Um, I think, uh, as we say in the brief, there's the case, the Ganter case. Right. I was going to ask you about that. Um, that uh, uh, there was some review um, afforded in that case. Um, but that case, as we argue in our brief, uh, was unique because it was unique to a circumstance where we're talking about striking jurors based on uh, a particular class, which, you know, uh, uh, by a protected, through a protected class. Um, in that case, it was a, uh, the challenge to uh, that a juror was uh, wrongfully stricken for cause based strictly on their race, um, was the challenge in Ganter. And there's um, some cases in this court's uh, precedent that you know, sort of read together. Um, I believe uh, uh, create a situation where um, there's a claim there to, to, to be said that you but can't. But you argue this categorically. You're looking to stretch, stretch the law in this circuit to follow the Seventh Circuit. May, which maybe was, in this maybe was dictum and maybe wasn't in this circumstance. Yes, Your Honor, because there's no there's in no this circumstance. No, your your argument is categorical as I read the brief. Well, you can't review this where there's no claim that there's a protected class implicated. Then we can't review it. Where there's a claim that there's a protected class implicated, then I think Gantter might control. And I think that is because it goes into whether or not there would be an objection to using a peremptory here. In this, in, 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 the, in the protected class, you know, in the racial class, in the Batson circumstance, where there is an objection to using a peremptory, then the court goes back and can so, look at so the four so cards. inherent appearance of bias can never be reviewed. A situation in which a, a, a judge is concerned that, that a, a reasonable person aware of all these facts would think the judge shouldn't sit on this case. That's unreviewable by us. Because there's no protected class, it's just perception, perceived bias. But perceived bias is the height of, is the heart of, well, there, there's no claim in this case, Your Honor, that the jury that sat was biased in any way. Well, yeah, but your, your claim is that we're categorically prohibited from reviewing it. And the question really is, okay, so a juror gives an answer that evidences or evinces, I guess, clear bias. And the judge refuses to remove the juror for bias, compelling someone to exercise a peremptory challenge, right? And that's certainly reviewable. Absolutely, Your Honor. So what's the difference, right? I mean, why is this somehow categorically somehow controlled by uh, a three-steps-removed Batson test as opposed to just ordinary review of whether or not the jury should have been struck for cause? There's two 
two, two pieces to that question. If you, if you can let me take one step back sure, from the question, sure. Your Honor, because um, your question was, there's, it's clear that there's bias. Um, if, uh, the, but your question then said, but then a peremptory is used. If it's clear that there's bias, but a peremptory is used, then that's not reviewable because the, the juror didn't sit. The situation that would be reviewable would be it's clear that there's bias and the juror sat. And the reason that's reviewable is because now there's a claim that there was a biased juror. Now the right is implicated because the right is the right to have a fair jury. You can argue this all morning. All I have to say is nothing is more apt to lose me than when the government in a brief, in an appellee's brief overreaches. And in my view, you are overreaching. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. Were there any more questions about that second issue? Well, what, what, what was, what was, what was the, why, why was there not an abuse of discretion? If we, if we were, if it's reviewable. If it's reviewable, I do think that the uh, standard and from Ganter would be having a sound basis. And in this case, uh, I think the record's very clear uh, that the district court's sound basis was simply not being comfortable uh, given its relationship with the juror having the juror set. Given that the both the judge and the juror are supposed to be neutral parties, what's the conflict? I, you know, I do think that's an interesting question. Um, and I think this is where uh, deference to the district court uh, uh, matters, and I think this is where this, the district court uh, makes a couple comments about it just wouldn't look right. Um, and so I think appearance of bias is what the district court's worried about. Well, he's obviously worried about the appearance of bias, but it seems to me that he interjected more possibility of a problem uh, by how he described his relationship with this potential juror. I'm friends with the parents. Um, I've known her since she was, you know, went to the same church there since she was a small child. I gave her a personal tour of the law school. I mean, listen, this is this is sort of unusual judge commentary on a relationship with a jury. I mean, I've tried 280 uh, jury trials as a judge, and I've never asked any or never made those sorts of comments. But I'm, but at the end of the day, having laid all that in, isn't it likely that 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 the judge might rationally be concerned that this juror might be given an inordinate voice in deliberations? I think that's a concern, Your Honor. I think that that's a possible concern. I think the judge did feel uh, some requirement to disclose uh, the relationship, and I think, uh, in particular. Um, you know, the court was disclosing uh, not only the relationship with the particular juror, but also her father. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think it was significant uh, that the judge noted that her father was on his conflicts list. Well, I think the comment about the mother is much more telling well, in the terms comment, of arguing for the other side. Well, the comment about the mother, though, comes after the objection was made. So the, the, the court explained its reason to strike. Uh, there was an objection made, and uh, the well, district court. You know, in the Batson context, nothing. The, the analysis doesn't start until the objection's made, and then the analysis turns on on the response. Well, but I think, though, uh, the comment was made uh, not. The comment was not uh, the juror can't sit because of her mother. The juror. The comment was rather back to the district attorney. Back to the. I'm sorry, the defense attorney. Uh, that I, I could assume you would, well, you would want this juror. 
And I think that's part of the problem with the challenge here, is the challenge here is why are we fighting over this juror? There is no statement that you can have a juror of your choice, and this is a, this is a defendant wanting a juror of their choice. The lawyer is trying to get the judge to do, to do by, by, with a cause objection what the lawyer may have to use a peremptory on. That's in voir dire all the time. But there was no, the government didn't move to strike this juror for cause. The court did it on its own. I'm talking about the defense counsel. The defense counsel is, yeah, is trying to preserve, well, the defense counsel wants the juror, Your Honor. I mean, this is a circumstance where the defense counsel wants to buy a juror. arguing around and around in circles. Here's what, this is neither here nor there, but it is a question I had reading the transcript. Um, it looks like the judge in this case sat down and said, these are the jurors that I think should be removed for cause. That's correct. Is that a practice in in uh, uh, in any district court? I mean, is that a regular practice? I mean, that struck me as, I mean, I get where you don't make them move to strike them while, you know, right in front of the jury so they know they've been moved to be, uh, to be struck by one side or the other. But, I mean, it seems, I mean, it seems like if a person gives a clearly disqualifying witness uh, question, you know, uh, I'm a racist, I can't set it aside, okay. the judge frequently says, I'm inclined to remove that juror for cause, any objections, and nobody objects, the juror leaves, right? But this process of just saying, at the end, these are the jurors I think would be ruined for cause, that's that's unusual to me, but is that ordinary? And It, it didn't strike me as an unusual, Your Honor. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say it was necessarily regular, but I've certainly seen courts do that before. Okay, I was just curious. Thank you. If there are any questions, I think about a third issue would be the one we haven't touched yet. Well, what about the first one? We'd like me to you go into the first issue, Your Honor, absolutely, I think. I th <laughs> your time, I mean, you know, that's, well, I, 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 that's what was argued, and you're up here not in response to a question, I, not addressing what's been argued by opposing counsel. Well, Your that's Honor, your prerogative. <laughs> Rest on your brief. Sometimes that's a good option. Well, I, I, I had said that I thought I would do that, um, but if you, if you would like me to touch back on the first issue, like I said before, um, I think the court covered most of the issues. I don't think this is a circumstance uh, where the, uh, I, th I think this is a circumstance that has to be broken down into what exactly happened at trial. There was a question, there was an objection to the question based on relevance and speculation, and that objection was overruled, and so the question was allowed. And I think the question clearly was relevant. So that, that part, that part, I don't think, uh, to the extent it was preserved, I, there's nothing, I don't think, you know, really is uh, merit to that appeal. So what we move really to what's being appealed is the motion for a mistrial. There was no objection to the answer when it was given. There was no motion to strike the answer. Later, there was a reference to, well, there's already been one reference to him being prohibited, so I'd like to make an objection and cut this off, and then later, then still, there's a motion for a mistrial. At that point, that's all really that's here to be reviewed. And at that point, the district court offers, well, do you want to strike the testimony? No. Do you want to cure the instruction? No. And that's trial strategy on part of the defense attorney. But it is not, you know, it's just normal trial practice 
You don't get to tell the court, it's my judgment that the, that the statement was so insignificant that I wouldn't even want to draw attention to it by having it stricken. I don't want to draw attention to it by having a curative instruction. And then come on appeal and say, it was so significant, you have to reverse the conviction. Because trial counsel made that choice that it wasn't insignificant. It was, it was, it was a statement with so little prejudice that they wanted it ignored. That is why waiver is appropriate here on appeal. And that is why uh, this court should affirm on that issue. Um, as it's the only issue that hasn't been touched on very quickly on the third issue, um, I think the facts from trial uh, show that Whitworth was directing uh, the conspiracy, that Whitworth was in charge of the conspiracy, and that Walker was effectively working for him. And under this case court law, uh, under this court's case law, uh, that is sufficient for uh, the application of the enhancement. Um, if there are no further questions, I uh, um, will uh, rest on what's been presented. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Well, With respect to every, everything, to first of all, you don't have time. I was going to say every, everything, everything has been opened for rebuttal by opposing counsel, so I'll give you a minute for rebuttal. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think the problem with argument two is the court's going to have to ask, well, what categories of people are we going to say are inherently biased? Those who have parents or exposure to defense, uh, criminal defense attorneys, and it was obvious to see in this case the defense had to use, it was either five, I think, four, four to six peremptory strikes against uh, potential jurors who had uh, familiar relationships with law enforcement officers. So how far are we going to go? Are we going to get in bigger and bigger jury polls where we're going to say, okay, all of these people are inherently biased. They haven't said anything that rises to the level of a strike for cause, but we're going to get rid of them. And so the, promise, the, the problem here is you have the person who has the connection with the defense attorney struck but not the others who have connections with law enforcement officers. So even though it may not, a person may not be in a protected class and this may not be an equal protection argument, there's a due process argument. And I don't think we could say that those due process challenges are categorically unreviewable. Judge, I again apologize for not realizing I was out of time. <laughs> I appreciate right. you indulging me. Right. Thank you. Watching the clock does not, as I can recall, that does not seem to be the most important part of arguing, uh, arguing an appellate case. And so I, um, that's why they show us the clock, so, so we can be pests about it. The case has been thoroughly briefed and argued. <clears throat> we'll take it under advisement.